Welcome to Ideas Without Borders, where we take a deeper look at societal problems and form meaningful connections with the global community. This podcast is run by the student members of the University of Waterloo's Engineers Without Borders chapter. The University of Waterloo is situated on the Haldeman Tract, land that was promised to the Six Nations of the Grand River, and is the traditional territory of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. We encourage you at this time to take a moment to also consider and acknowledge the land from which you are listening. Alright, so welcome back to another episode of Ideas Without Borders. My name is Simon and I'll be your host for this episode, where we'll look at supply chains and try to understand why they're so important in the context of the COVID-19 vaccine. If you've been keeping up with our previous few episodes, you'll know that our team has recently interviewed students from around the world to get a sense of how COVID-19 has impacted their lives and communities. As is the case for many of us, the transition to remote learning and working from home has transformed the time we would have spent commuting into some free time to do more things. I've personally taken this extra time to watch webinars, expert discussion panels, and even learn about the stock market. Needless to say, it's been about a year since this pandemic began, and I can barely remember what life was like before all of this started. And so while we all mostly continue to wash our hands, remain in place, and remember to wear a mask when going outside, the recent months have shown a little more signs of hope that this pandemic is almost over. Pharmaceutical and biotech companies like Pfizer and Moderna have successfully developed a vaccine to combat this virus. Delivery and vaccinations have already begun, and public health restrictions have been gradually but cautiously lifted. If you're curious like me, you've probably wondered at some point what a mass vaccination effort looks like and why it appears to take so long to complete. Recently, I attended two expert panels that went into more detail about the complexity surrounding this, particularly on the topic of supply chains and vaccine nationalism. The goal of this episode is to digest all of the things I've taken away from these panels and to also do a debrief on the vaccine nationalism panel with the moderator and guest for today, Dr. Susan Elliott. I'll note that both of these panels have been recorded and are made publicly available on YouTube, so if you're interested in listening to them yourself, I've posted the respective links in the description of this podcast. The first digest is from a University of Waterloo alumni speaker series titled Supply Chains in the Time of Crisis, the COVID-19 Vaccine Journey where three experts in supply chain logistics, management sciences, and operational research got together to answer a series of questions relating to the development and distribution of vaccines. For the sake of everyone who has no background in any of these spaces, including myself, we'll start with a basic definition of a supply chain provided by the moderator of this panel. Supply chains involve all operations from the inception of a product till its end of use. It includes sourcing, manufacturing, distribution, storage, recycling, and so on. To better illustrate this idea, let's take a vegetable supply chain as an example. Figuring it out on a basic level is pretty easy. We repeatedly ask the question, where does this come from, until we think we've exhausted the process. The answer to each iteration of this question becomes an individual box that connects to the previous answer. So to start, where does a vegetable at, say, the grocery store come from? Likely a distributor, which then becomes a box. Well, next, where do distributors get their vegetables from? Likely a farmer. Box. Where do farmers get their vegetables? Likely from planting and growing a seed. The seed becomes a box. Well, then where do the seeds come from? 
Nowadays, to my knowledge, seeds either come from a previous growing season or from a seed products company, Box. And with that, the list goes on and on. Once all the boxes are mapped out in the supply chain, we can start adding complexity to our understanding by asking more detailed questions about each box, such as, who's responsible for this? Where does it happen? How long does this box take to do its job? If you're interested in the efficiency or the speed of a supply chain, you might ask, what does this box need in order to do its job? Or how many people are involved in this box? Or maybe even, where can this box exist or not exist? Once you think you have a better picture set up, some really interesting questions you could start asking yourself to challenge your understanding and assumptions include, why does this box even exist? Are there any missing boxes from my understanding? Or is this box absolutely necessary? Or maybe even, what happens to the rest of the supply chain when this box fails? The idea of supply chains is not something new. It's actually been around for centuries, and their characteristics have evolved over time from being cost-efficient to responsive to green to sustainable to today's context, humanitarian. This brings us to the term supply chain for good. A supply chain where resources from different sectors and expertise from different domains are pulled together to achieve a common goal. Needless to say, this makes supply chains a highly complex and highly interdisciplinary network. In today's example, we could say that a vaccine supply chain is a supply chain for good. In the case of, say, the Pfizer vaccine, the vaccine must be stored at a temperature of negative 80 degrees Celsius at all times, even in transport. And so its supply chain can also be described as a cold chain, which is just another way of saying a temperature-controlled supply chain that provides continuous refrigeration throughout to maintain product quality. So now that we understand supply chains a little bit better, let's try and break down the vaccine supply chain using the method that we just illustrated. We'll start by identifying the basic boxes and the material resources that go into each of them. This should prepare us enough for the detailed discussions in our upcoming chat with Dr. Elliot. In this supply chain, the ultimate goal is to get a COVID-19 vaccine from a manufacturing plant into a patient's arm. Working backwards, the first box starts with members of the general public, who seek to do what they can to get vaccinated while taking health and safety measures in the meantime to avoid catching the virus. Once vaccinated, the individual makes the effort to monitor their reactions and to also get a second dose as recommended to build enough immunity. So then, where does the patient get vaccinated? The answer in the second box to our supply chain is the healthcare provider, who's most likely stationed at either a hospital or a pharmacy or some sort of injection site. Here, vaccines must be administered by trained healthcare professionals who have access to the appropriate peripherals, including personal protective equipment, certified storage for the vaccine, accompanying saline solution in the case of the Pfizer vaccine, and medical information about the patient. It was noted during the panel that in this box, the staffing capacity, inventory, volume, and timing of patient visits, and ease of access to medical records are all factors in determining how quickly healthcare providers can vaccinate the target population. Now we ask the question, where do these healthcare providers get their vaccines from? This brings us to our third box, the delivery operators. In the case of Canada, many of our vaccines are made in Europe, so we should be careful in noting that this box may actually contain multiple sub-boxes that represent the multiple forms of transportation involved across often several countries. In each sub-box, we have vehicle operators, 
airports, seaports, warehouses, fueling stations, security guards, inspectors, and of course, service technicians who install and maintain the storage units carrying the vaccine. Once again, where do these deliveries come from? This reveals our next box, which is the manufacturer who provides the vaccines for delivery. These manufacturing plants have to be built by construction companies, certified and licensed by relevant authorities, operated by workers, and supplied with the required raw materials such as the secret mRNA compounds and packaging vials. With that comes our final and most interesting iteration of the question. Where do manufacturers get their instructions? Currently, these instructions come exclusively from the pharmaceutical companies who have developed the vaccine. In this supply chain, speed is key, but not all of the boxes we've listed exist all around the world. For this reason, it's not a surprise that countries around the world all experience different wait times for receiving their shipments of the vaccine. It should also be noted that vaccines differ by brand, proven effectiveness through clinical trials, and storage requirements. To make things even more complicated, we should also consider the fact that some patients may be better suited to receive one brand over another, and that administering mixed brands of the COVID-19 vaccine is currently not recommended, as it's not a generic buffet at this point. Furthermore, the effectiveness of these vaccines on new variants or mutations of the virus is still being contested. Given the limited supplies, long wait times, and new infections with variants of the virus, governments and logistics managers are often faced with difficult decisions ahead. Between age, occupation, and regional groupings, who gets vaccinated first? Which types of vaccines are most needed and how can we get them in a timely manner? Thinking across scales, which cities get vaccinated first? What about which countries? How do we ensure quality control along the supply chain, especially at the last mile? Keeping these questions in mind, let's dive deeper into a discussion about how the human aspects of global health systems play a role in this supply chain with Dr. Susan Elliott. Thanks again so much for taking the time to join us today, Dr. Elliott. We're super excited to have you here. Thank uh, to you. Speak, yeah, to speak with us about vaccine nationalism and the human aspects of the COVID-19 supply chain. In the first half of this episode, we learned about the idea of supply chains and through a digest of another speaker series, pieced together a basic picture of the general COVID-19 supply chain operating today. We have essentially five sequential boxes. The first being the pharmaceutical companies who design and patent the vaccine, the manufacturer who mass produces the vaccine, the distributor or distributors who deliver the vaccine from the plant to the healthcare centers, the healthcare providers who administer the vaccines, and finally, members of the public who receive the vaccine at their local healthcare center. We've talked a little bit about the resources required for each of these boxes, and now we turn our attention to the human aspects that govern the interactions between them. So before we begin, would you actually mind telling us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. So I'm a medical geographer by training. I've been at the University of Waterloo since 2010. I came here as the Dean of Applied Health Sciences. But as a geographer, I wanted to go home to my academic unit when I finished being Dean. Before that, I was at McMaster for 15 years. And the last job I did there was Dean of Social Sciences. My very first job was at the University of Victoria in British Columbia. So I've moved around a bit. Um, my PhD is from Mac. The primary focus of my research is in global environment and health, and I have a very strong focus in my research on water and sanitation. 
Great. Would you mind explaining also a little bit, what is a medical geographer? Mm -hmm, for sure. Well, I'm teaching medical geography this term, uh, Geography 325, if anyone's interested. Medical geography is the study of the distribution, diffusion, determinants, and delivery of health and healthcare. So it's essentially your relationship with the environment and how it affects your health and well-being. And in that context, health is very broadly defined to be more than simply the absence of disease. And environment, I use Einstein's definition of environment, which is the environment is everything that's not me. Sounds very highly interdisciplinary. Very much so, very much so. And so the first tough question that <clears throat> some of our listeners might be thinking about now, given that they've just gone over how a supply chain for a vaccine works is how does one decide as a government or maybe some sort of authority figure who gets vaccinated first when we're faced with more population than supply of a vaccine? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you'll see all across the world that people have decided, governments and healthcare policymakers have decided to vaccinate the most vulnerable first, and those being people of a certain age, over a certain age, and those who care for those people over a certain age. And I think that's what we're seeing pretty much all over the world. I think that makes sense. I think, you know, once we get past that, you know, dealing with the old, old and the old, there might be some discussion. I feel strongly that it's the people who've been working through all of this pandemic who deserve to be vaccinated first. The teachers, the bus drivers, the frontline workers, but also the people in the grocery store who have, you know, they've never had a chance to walk away from this virus. They've been there the entire time so that you and I can go grocery shopping still. So I think if I were in charge, it would be the people with the most exposure. Can I challenge your supply chain? Sure, sure. Yeah, a little bit, because I think you've, not you, but uh, in the discussions that you've had, there, there's another box in that supply chain. Great. And that box is the scientists who, in, who developed the vaccines. Yes. And they're not represented. And I definitely think that they should be represented. Um, and I'll, I'll reflect back on that when we get to later questions around vaccine hesitancy. I'm really glad you brought this up because one of the things we talked about earlier in the episode is to essentially challenge our assumption of the boxes we've drawn and ask ourselves, are we missing any boxes? And so through talking with individuals such as yourself, we're able to get a better understanding. You moderated a panel mid last week, mm -hmm. and this panel focused on the topic of vaccine nationalism in the context of global health systems. And I'll be honest with you, this was the first time I had ever heard a term called vaccine nationalism. So what exactly is vaccine nationalism and how does it emerge? Yeah, I, I think not many people have talked about it. I think using that language. Right. I think a lot of us have thought about these issues. We just haven't called it vaccine nationalism. It's just a nice compact phrase that we can use for the fact that countries want to put themselves first in front of other countries. And so, you know, we see the United States of America and even, you know, just being on this side of the border, you feel a little bit of almost resentment, right? You guys didn't handle this situation very well at all. Half a million people dead. And yet you've got all the vaccine. You're administering vaccine. What's going on? There are always issues and across the provinces there are issues, but we did a better job of handling the vaccine or handling the virus rather. And yet we don't have any vaccines. Part of that is because we are a very large country, 
very small population, relatively speaking. So we have no internal capacity to produce vaccine. Having said that, there are two companies that are deciding that they're going to build vaccine production facilities in Canada because this is not going away, right? And so now they see a return, on, a potential return on investment. Previously, there was no potential return on investment. The other box that I mentioned, which is the people who developed the vaccine, we've actually got quite a few vaccines in development in Canada. There's one in Quebec, there's one in Calgary, and there's one at Dalhousie. And the one in Calgary, for example, province of Manitoba already bought 2 million doses of the Calgary vaccine. They're not even in phase two yet, let alone phase three. But we do have amazing people developing vaccine in this country. We just can't produce it once we develop it. So what do we do? We have to rely on the kindness of others, right? I see. But America is going to put America first. Britain is going to put Britain first. And Canada is going to have to wait. There's just no question about that. And that's what vaccine nationalism is. If we can't produce it for ourselves, we have to rely on the kindness of others. It's one thing if you're Canada relying on the kindness of others. It's another if you're sub-Saharan Africa or very poor parts of Southeast Asia. There are vaccines being administered, for example, in Southeast Asia and in parts of the UAE that are Chinese vaccines that may or may not, and only because we just haven't seen the reports, may or may not have been all the way through phase three testing. We know that the one in Russia did not go all the way to phase three testing. They started implementing it before it got to phase three. So different countries have different levels of rigor in the approval process. So we may be seeing vaccines being administered in other countries that, you know, like we could maybe go to Russia and buy a whole bunch of vaccines and get them tomorrow. But we probably wouldn't do that because it would fly in the face of all the Health Canada regulations. So we have to rely on the kindness of others. COVAX was an organization put together where all the rich countries would put money in and buy vaccine so that we could give it to low-income countries who can't afford the vaccine and would be way down the supply chain or way down the chain. Um, And in fact, just yesterday, 600,000 doses uh, arrived in Ghana. The problem with servicing, and you heard this in the webinar perhaps, the problem with servicing Sub-Saharan Africa is we've taken out the two major vaccines because they have to be kept at minus 70, minus 80. We just can't do that in a Sub-Saharan African context. We can keep them cold, but we can't necessarily keep them frozen forever. So vaccine nationalism is the me first attitude at the state level. We've seen a lot of me first attitude at the individual level, people jumping the queue or, you know, pretending to be somebody they're not. Uh, like the couple in Vancouver, just to get a vaccine. But this is me first at the national level, and that has real implications. The other issue related to that, so there's vaccine nationalism, there's COVAX, which is the organization trying to buy up vaccine for uh, less developed countries or countries in the global south. There's also the TRIPS agreement. I mean, like everything, there's two sides to every story, right? We are expecting, we as a society, have an expectation that there's this major health issue. We rely on pharmaceutical companies and their big R&D departments to develop a vaccine for us to make us safer so that this Christmas we can all have big parties. There's lots of other aspects to that too, but we, we have come as a society to have these expectations with really high expectations of what healthcare can do for us, what the pharmaceutical industry can do for us. The other side of that coin is the pharmaceutical industry does these things for us because they make a lot of money. 
make a lot of money because they invest all that R&D money, they produce something, they sell it at whatever cost the market will bear, but they've made the investment in the R&D. And as you can imagine, not every huge investment in the R&D is going to produce outcome. So, you know, a lot of it goes by the wayside because it didn't work. In this case, they have really pulled out all the stops to create a vaccine for us. We expect them to stop everything, drop everything and just produce doses of vaccine to distribute around the world to make us all safe again. So we're saying that on the one hand, on the other hand, we're saying, but at the same time, could you please give up your intellectual property rights so you could give your formula to other companies who didn't spend all that money developing this vaccine. So they've got the recipe. It's like saying to Burger King, here's McDonald's recipe <laughs> for uh, egg McMuffins. Now you can make them and make just as much money as McDonald's. McDonald's is saying, well, that's not fair. We're the ones who developed the recipe. We marketed it. We created this demand and so on and so on. Why should they get profits when we don't? Now, you know yourself, when you get a prescription for something from the doctor, you go to the drugstore, they will often give you a generic brand instead of a name brand, right? Right, right. But that's because after a certain number of years, the patent will expire. Okay. And they yeah. no longer own the intellectual property rights. They have to give up the recipe. Mm -hmm. right? So what the World Trade Organization is saying to Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson is, give up the recipe. Come mm -hmm. on. This is yeah. a global crisis. Give up the recipe. We will give you back the intellectual property rights to this when the WHO declares this is no longer a pandemic. Right now, this is a global crisis. Everybody needs to be vaccinated. If you want to be safe, I have to be vaccinated. If I want to be safe, you have to be vaccinated. We're all in this together. Please give up the recipe so that we can hand it over to other drug manufacturers and say, okay, now you make a million doses and you make it because here's the recipe, just follow right. the recipe. So the big companies who, who developed the recipe are saying, that's not fair. You made us drop everything else. It's our R&D. We deserve to make this money. That's their side of the argument. Right. And on the one hand, I sort of agree with them. You mm -hmm. guys dropped everything and created these things. You deserve to make a lot of money out of this. On the other hand, a lot of that money came from private donors, including Dolly Parton, and it came from government, right? Trudeau has put a lot of money into vaccine development in Canada. The U.S. put in a ton of federal government taxpayer dollars into vaccine development. And now the pharmaceutical companies are making all the profit. Right. So it's that balance of literally you know, risks and yeah. benefits and profit. And so what the WTO, what several countries of the global south are asking, like India and, and other parts of Southeast Asia, are asking the World Trade Organization, who will vote on March the 2nd, to say, please, can you give up the intellectual property just until the WHO says this is no longer a pandemic? Then you can have it back. You can make as much money as you want to. But if you would give that up, we would be able to get all kinds of companies to start manufacturing, not just the ones who invented it. Now, the pushback, as I understand it, is that the vaccines that are MNRA based, and that's about as much as I know, so don't ask me about the chemistry, <laughs> the recipe is too hard to follow, is what okay. we're told. So there's no way that they could follow it. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what the big companies are saying. But just to give you a sense of the magnitude of this issue, mm -hmm. In the 1980s, when the last 
major global pandemic was HIV AIDS, right? When it yep. first started, nobody knew what caused it. Nobody knew how to cure it. It was a death sentence. And then, you know, we developed antiretroviral drugs. Stephen Lewis, very famous Canadian, who was the UN envoy to, to, or the Canadian envoy to the UN on HIV AIDS for many years, fought and fought and fought and fought for a TRIPS agreement so that major companies would give up their intellectual property to reduce the cost of ARVs, particularly for those in sub-Saharan Africa. So the vast majority of people with HIV AIDS were in sub-Saharan Africa. They couldn't afford the drugs. So that for them, it was still a death sentence. Whereas in North America, if you had a drug plan, you could get the drugs. They finally got the TRIPS agreement. And I'm going to guess at the year, I think it was 1991, but any of your listeners should look that up. But I think it was 1991 or 92. It was the year that Mandela was released from jail, pretty much. So they finally got the TRIPS agreement. What that meant was the annual course of ARVs for an individual before the TRIPS agreement was 10,000 US dollars. And we're talking early 90s, 10,000 US dollars. Once they had the TRIPS agreement, and they were able to produce those drugs generically, it was reduced to 300 US dollars. So it is a significant, significant difference if you can produce them generically, as opposed to with the intellectual property attached. So that's what the TRIPS agreement is. Right now, there are a few uh, low-income countries trying to push the World Trade Organization to vote in favor of this. But it's a huge lobbying effort, right? So you've got India trying to lobby the U.S. and the U.K. and yeah. Israel, who's way off the charts in terms of their vaccine program, to do this. And I don't know what's going to happen. So the TRIPS agreement is not something new. It's actually been tried it and implemented been used before. And yes. so the most famous case is uh, for antiretroviral um, drugs for those with HIV/AIDS. And I'm sure there have been others, but I don't know what they are. But the most famous is HIV/AIDS. You actually answered some of my follow-up questions, such as what have we done in reaction to vaccine distributions in the past with previous pandemics? Every once in a while, there's an epidemic of Ebola in sub-Saharan Africa, right? And the most recent being only two years ago, in well, I think it was 2017-18. We still don't have an Ebola vaccine. Why do you think that is? Because Ebola only exists in sub-Saharan Africa. So I travel there quite frequently for my research. And, you know, the last time I arrived at the airport in Ethiopia, there's big posters everywhere advertising, come to Ethiopia and visit because we're Ebola free. And, you know, this thing about um, getting your temperature checked when you walk into a uh, an airport. I remember going into Uganda when Ebola was, uh, there were no cases in, in Uganda at the time, but they were trying desperately to keep it out. And I walked into the airport and there's this lovely lady in a nurse's uniform who said, hi, welcome to Uganda. And at the same time, she stuck a thermometer in my ear. There was nothing fancy about it to take my temperature. And then the next time I was in Ethiopia, they had the scans like they take the scan of your temperature. It's just such a normal thing to do in other parts Mm. of the world. You know, it gets to the discussion, too, about vaccine passports. I cannot get into Uganda without opening my vaccine passport and showing them my yellow fever certificate. They will not let me in the country because they are yellow fever free and they want to stay that way. So discussions about that as well. It's really interesting you brought up the idea of vaccine passports. I think I saw somewhere earlier in the month that uh, I think it was either Denmark or Finland was thinking about digital vaccine passport implementations as well. Um, in terms of 
the long-term outlook on maintaining a healthy population and making mm -hmm. sure no new variants or new cases come in yeah. under the radar. I guess I have two follow-up questions. The mm -hmm. first speaks again back to the intellectual property piece that you mentioned mm -hmm. and what it would look like if an intellectual property right was temporarily removed, if you may, mm -hmm. and then given back to the original owner of whatever said patent. Is this actually reversible? Because yep. once you've shared, I guess, this information, isn't it kind of already yeah. out there? I mean, it's like a contract, right? You, we will give you the right to use this material, to use this recipe for this period of time. Then after that period of time, you can no longer use this or we will penalize you in some way. You will be accountable. Ah. It's just like, you know, say for your podcast, right. you wanted to use a Taylor Swift song. <laughs> Yeah. And so you contacted her people and you said, yeah. I'm going to do this podcast for the five years while I'm doing a PhD or whatever. Okay. And they said, okay, you pay us this much money. You may use the song for five years. I purchase videos that I use in class mm -hmm. and I'm given the right to show them as educational material for seven years. And then after that, you know, I'm done. So yes, ah, you can okay. time limit those things very easily with, with accountability. I mean, the devil's in the details, of course. Right. But yeah, could you become contractually obligated to stop doing it at that time? Now, mm. have there been breaches of that? I'm sure there have. But So then my other follow-up question is to once again ask you to speak a little bit more about this missing box that we had in the supply mm -hmm. chain. Yeah. And in line with our exercise earlier in the episode, what exactly goes into this scientific research box? Where can it actually exist in the world? And... As a researcher yourself, how long does it take for this box to actually perform or, I guess, be ready to serve a purpose such as the vaccine supply chain? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm going to I'm gonna, I'll share a very interesting story with you. Sure. Um, because, you know, when people talk to me about vaccine hesitancy, mm -hmm. I say, you know what? The reason we got a vaccine so quickly is not because we cut any corners. It's because people are working 24 hours, seven days a week. They've given up their lives. They've given up everything else. They've given up their families to make this happen. So I say that rather generically. And mm -hmm. then a week ago, I had a conversation with a colleague at Oxford. I work with this colleague on water, health, and sanitation projects. But because of COVID-19, we had not communicated for a couple of years. This colleague informed me it just in the course of conversation when I said, you know, how's it going? What's it like where you are? This colleague told me their spouse had been AWOL for the last year because this spouse was centrally involved in the development team for the Oxford vaccine. So this person had said, basically, I haven't seen my spouse in over a year. They're just in the lab all the time working on this. Not only that, in the course of conversation, when I ask about, you know, the kids and so on, how are your homeschooling you know, activities going? They have a young child and that young child has now been enrolled in the child vaccine trials. So, you know yourself, one of the things you hear in the news is, well, what do we do about pregnant women? What do we do about immunocompromised? What do we do about children? Because we have no data yet. They're doing uh, child trials in Oxford and he signed him, signed his daughter up. And we laughed about that a little bit as scientists talking to other scientists. And they said, that's no big deal. She's been in vaccine trials since she was an infant. That is to me just the quintessential tangible sign of commitment of these scientists to making this happen. They're not doing it for personal glory. 
They're not doing it for money. They are doing it because this is their science. This is what they can contribute to the world. And they are pulling out all the stops. And they're doing that everywhere. I have seen vaccinologists at Dalhousie being interviewed and the poor guy saying, you see these black circles under my eyes? It's not because I've been out partying. It's because I haven't slept in a year. We are in the lab every single day. So I have no hesitation supporting the scientists and supporting the vaccines that are being created. I trust the systems absolutely and completely. Do I think Health Canada is doing its job? Absolutely. Same with, I, I absolutely, especially now, uh, believe that the US is doing their job, the FDA is doing its job in improving vaccines. Nobody's cutting any corners anywhere. It just wouldn't happen. Do you really think Pfizer or Moderna or Johnson & Johnson are gonna risk their reputation with a faulty vaccine? Absolutely not. They stand to lose way too much money. This is a really powerful uh, realization that we have now uh, in terms of our understanding of what exactly it takes to maintain and operate this supply chain. For the listeners that are tuned in right now, I really hope that this uh, opens your eyes a little bit about what exactly is going on outside of uh, whatever it is that you're staying and working or studying from home. With that in mind and all of this rigorous research that's happening uh, in support of the development of these vaccines. My next question is a little bit about how all of these findings and all of this progress can be properly communicated to general members of the public who may be wondering what exactly, and this may be a little bit outside of your expertise, but what exactly goes into the vaccine or like, I guess at the end of the day, how can I be sure that I can trust what is going into my arm? In some cases, these skepticisms are justified. In other cases, they may not be. But how would typical health authorities go about addressing this question? And what are sort of the challenges there with respect to sort of the, the intellectual property piece that uh, you spoke to a little bit earlier? Yeah, I think I think the, the two things are rather independent. So the intellectual property piece is really just how much money is the pharmaceutical company going to make. But the vaccine hesitancy piece, it's it's real. And and you don't hear people talking about anti-vaxxers, right? You hear people talking about vaccine hesitancy. It's a new vaccine. It was developed very quickly. Should I get it? Should I not get it? What if I'm immunocompromised? What if I have, you know, MS or lupus or something like that? Should I get vaccinated? And I think there's two sides to this story. One is um, over time, and we know this from lots and lots of data, over time, there's been a decrease in deference to authority more generally. So do I trust my government? Do I not trust my government? We know in Canada, relatively speaking, there's a very high level of trust in government. And like everything else, it's like US, Canada, UK, Canada's always in the middle. It's much higher in the UK and much lower in the US, Canada's somewhere in the middle. But we still do have a fairly high level of deference to authority. But there, there's a whole science around uh, what you're describing we call knowledge translation. And I actually yes. do a lot of knowledge translation work. I work in areas like food allergy. So if I asked you, what percentage of the Canadian population do you think has a food allergy? What would you say? I would say more than 50%. Okay. I've actually done the research three yeah. times in Canada, national surveys. It's 7.5%. Oh, so why do you think it's over 50% when really it's only seven and a half percent? That's a knowledge translation issue. Okay. Okay. We yeah, haven't okay. translated that knowledge very well. 
-hmm. And so people go around saying, I have a food allergy. Well, you don't really have a food allergy because that's not what a food allergy is. Or you think you have a food allergy or somebody told you you have a food allergy, but you haven't been diagnosed by a doctor or whatever. So there's this gap between perception and reality. And the problem there is knowledge translation. How do we translate that knowledge? So, for example, we know that papers are being published based on these data in the peer-reviewed literature within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. It's insane. That would never happen in the past. But you say that to the public in order to add credibility to your argument that you should get vaccinated, and they say, I don't know what that means. What does that mean? So how do we translate that knowledge? There is actually in the UK, there's an amazing organization called Making Sense of Science, and it's a uh, we would call it a crown corporation. It's it's a national trust, so it's a not-for-profit. And they actually produce documents that explain things to the general public in language they can understand. And they actually have one called, um, I forget what it's called, actually. You can look it up, go to the <laughs> sure, website. Sure, yeah. They have one on peer review. Okay. So when you're reading the newspaper and they say there's a peer-reviewed study that says you shouldn't drink more than eight glasses of wine a week or else you're going to die of a heart attack. And somebody says, what does peer review mean? You can go to this site and there's a lovely little document that explains to you what that means in language that you can understand. And the general public is not unknowledgeable. Sorry, that's not true. It's not that they they don't have intelligence. They just don't have the knowledge. And there's a big difference, right? They can understand stuff if we know how to explain it. But if mm-hmm. I went to the head of you know the lab at Oxford and said, can you explain to this person why they should be vaccinated? I'll bet you they struggle a little bit because we're scientists and we're in lab clothes. And we, you know, many faculty members probably that you know are very introverted. We don't like to talk to the media. <laughs> and the media tries to push us into black and white answers. And there, is, there are no black and white answers, right? right. Yes, this is going to be effective 74% of the time. Well, what about the other 26%? Well, I can't really tell you. Yeah. And But there has to be a, a, media, a happy medium. And there actually is a new and emerging kind of occupation called knowledge broker, which is the person who can take what the scientist says and translate it into language that the average member of the public can understand. And in fact, very early on in the pandemic, the Lancet, which is the top international uh, medical journal in the world, came out with an editorial where they talked about the infodemic, that is the mass distribution of misinformation. And so we actually have done, we're in the middle of doing a study uh, with women with lupus. Why would we do that? Women with lupus are immunocompromised. So they're already at risk for uh, COVID-19. If they get it, they're probably gonna be more sick than you or I. They also rely on hydroxychloroquine as the primary drug that keeps them alive and well. And what happened? early on in the pandemic, Donald Trump said hydroxychloroquine, that's the way to go. And he cornered the market on hydroxychloroquine. And all of a sudden, women with lupus were being restricted in the amount that they could get when they went to refill their prescriptions. They ran out in the province of Quebec. They ran out in some countries in Europe. And um, in the U.S., we heard stories of women who, you know, they would go to fulfill their prescription. It would be like 100 U.S. a month. And all of a sudden, it was 1,000 U.S. a month because the president of Brazil was using it. Trump was cornering the market on hydroxychloroquine. He was giving it to all his friends. And despite what the studies were saying, they were saying 
oh, Trump says it must be true, it must be true, right? And so we actually embarked on a, on a study with women with lupus in Canada, the US and 10 other countries around the world about that issue, but also about where do you get health information from and who do you trust for your source of health information? And I can say this uh, because we've actually published a couple of like posters for conferences, yeah. but our data indicate that most of the time I trust my doctor and I trust my rheumatologist Less so do I trust social media or news media. Mm -hmm. But once the pandemic started, that flipped. And they started going to news media and uh, social media. And we're not quite sure why that is, but a couple of women told us it was because they were afraid to leave the house. They didn't want to go see their doctor right, right, right. because they were afraid of getting COVID-19. Yeah. So all that to say, uh, we are actually collecting all of these data and then we're going to work with the patient support organizations like Lupus Canada, Lupus Foundation of America, to say this is what your constituency needs from you and this is what they need and in what form so that, I mean, obviously we're not going to solve the problem we currently have, but going forward, we will know the best ways to communicate that information and who is the right person to communicate that information. Mm -hmm. Interesting story, when polio uh, vaccines were first developed in the 1950s. Um, we did not have a level of rigor and discretion in terms of those vaccines. And one vaccine in the US was rushed to market and they started giving it to children and some children died. Some children got very sick and some children died. So they got rid of that vaccine, obviously. They changed the whole system for how they approve vaccines. And then the vaccine was back in, in circulation and nobody would get the vaccine because of these backstories. So do you know what they did? They vaccinated the most famous, attractive person to young people they could find at the time on live television. So do you know who that would, so 1958, who would have appealed to the masses, primarily to young people, teenagers, young adults, who would have appealed 1958 in the US? I kind of want to say Elvis, but Elvis uh, Presley, exactly right. Wow, he go. was vaccinated <laughs> on live television um, during the Ed Sullivan show. Oh wow! Yeah, so you know what? And so I made a joke when I was doing this in class. I said, "Let's get Justin Bieber." <laughs> 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 you know, uh, it's you know, let's get the tragically hip. Let's get whoever Canadians think is super famous. And so yeah. that's that's the kind of marketing that you need, right? Yeah, yeah. And if if it's good enough for Elvis Presley, it's good enough for me. So maybe it's even fair to say that there should be one more box in this whole supply chain, and maybe not so much in a linear fashion, but um, just before reaching the vaccine reaches the uh, general public, is uh, a box for the knowledge broker. Yes. Uh, that conveys all this information, kind of like what we're doing now. If Yes, I could uh, even say so. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. And, you know, um, there is a place for that. Absolutely yeah. and completely, because you have to think not only about you have to think about the diversity of your population. Right. We yeah. have an indigenous component. We have a lot of new Canadians in this country who come to us from different countries where levels of trust in authority and government are very different. And rightly so, because of, you know, the, their countries of origin. Um, we have so many different languages that are spoken. How are we even communicating to people for whom English is not a first language? And so I, this is what I'm going to say. I'm going to say I think we really need to engage the pharmacists, honestly. 
because they're the front line for so many community level, like how many shoppers drug marts are there in Canada? And those pharmacists are the ones who talk to the little old people who come in and ask questions or the new moms. They're there, they're community based. So from a geography perspective, to me, the best way to disseminate the vaccine would be to get every pharmacist and then also get every first, second and third year pharmacy student from the University of Waterloo out into those shoppers drug marts 24 hours a day. I would go at four o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning and get a vaccine. Um, Just like if you get an an appointment for an MRI, you often go in the middle of the night, right? Go get your vaccine in the middle of the night, Um, but use the community infrastructure that's there and that includes community pharmacists. Terrific idea. I hope it actually uh, I hope happens. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I guess I don't want to take up too much time. I promised you one hour. Um, so I'll, I'll end with one more uh, question on a personal note. Uh, but sure. before that, I'd like to thank you so much for, for all of your wonderful insights and contributions sure. to this episode. My pleasure. With that in mind, the last question is whether or not you think there are any changes that have resulted as a byproduct of this pandemic that are going to be here to stay. Yeah, I think... I'll say three serious ones and and then a kind of frivolous one that's very close to home. Um, One, because I'm a university professor, I I saw early on a lot of stuff in our literature about, oh, you know, universities are going to start going online. Students aren't going to want to go to class. You know, they're going to want to learn remotely and professors are never going to go back to the campus. I absolutely and completely disagree with that. We are so lonely. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean that in the true sense. I miss being in the classroom. I offer offer my students bonus marks if they'll come to uh, my office hours and talk to me about a current event that's related to what we're learning in class. Um, Because I miss students so much. It's such an unsatisfactory experience to teach remotely because I'm not seeing their responses and reactions. And it's like a natural high being in the classroom with students. I miss that. And I think they miss it too. My prediction is once we're back, uh in person that for the first time ever everybody will go to class at least (laughs) first term everybody will go to class yeah uh the second is that i think we've made healthcare a lot more accessible for people so being able to do virtual physician appointments when in person is not necessary i think should and could continue um so for example in ontario what happened was you know, they wanted to start doing virtual appointments or appointments by phone, but that wasn't in the OHIP formulary. You wouldn't get paid for that. So they actually had to change that so that doctors could get compensated for doing, you know, something like this with you. Like, show me your rash. Let me see. Like, come really close <laughs> to the camera. You know what I mean? Yeah. That could and should continue. That will save so much in our healthcare system. It really, really will. Because a lot of times, you know, we know that the biggest consumers of doctor's appointments is new moms and older people. And if we can, you know, eliminate a good chunk of that, that will really help with healthcare resources. The third serious one is I think I think we will see patterns of work changing. I don't see us, you know, being remote forever. I don't like it. Most people don't like it. Some people love it. Most people don't like it. Do I want to start commuting back and forth to Waterloo again from where I live for an hour each day, five days a week? No, and I don't, I think most people don't. And I think most people now realize they don't have to be in the workplace five days a week, Mm -hmm. three days a week. Something will change there. 
and that will have a huge impact on the environment. We'll use our roads less, we'll, we'll drive our cars less, and that will be a really positive change. But people are people for a reason, and they miss being with people. They will want to be with people. The last thing I'll say, which um, I, I'd been dreaming about for years and years, is just having my groceries delivered to my house. <laughs> <laughs> Love that now. Sit you know, Sunday night in my pajamas, filling out my little form and saying, okay, can you deliver this on Thursday between six and seven in the morning so I can have fresh milk for breakfast? I love that. And I think that will continue. Um, but uh, I worry about transportation yeah. Um, yeah. more generally about, you know, planes and trains and buses and because people need to get around and they, they need to see their families and they need to travel and they need to get to work. Um, but uh, I, I, I don't agree with any of the predictions around universities. I really don't. This time has allowed me to move provinces uh, to continue my studies. And in a sense, I kind of miss being on campus as well. And just, for example, the geese, right? When <laughs> was the last time I saw a goose? Yeah. When I stepped outside or that like that one time I was on campus and um, there's this wild turkey running into the DC library. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the co-location, there's this, you know, because Waterloo is such a STEM university, if you yeah. walk through um, the math department, the new math building, right? And there yes. are floor to ceiling whiteboards. That's what the wall is. It's floor to ceiling whiteboards. Yes. You walk in in the morning and they're empty and you walk out in the afternoon and they're full because people stop in the hallway and they say, hey, I, I'm thinking about this. What do you think? And they start drawing and stuff. That's where the excitement is. That's where the intellectual excitement is. And that's what I miss. Yes. Um, I miss seeing my colleagues, yeah, knowing how they're doing. But mostly it's like running across them in the photocopy room and saying, hey, what are you working on? Oh, well, that's really cool. Oh, I'm doing this. Yeah. You can't do that remotely. For sure. And it will end soon. We'll all get vaccinated. Yay. <laughs> it's definitely a different kind of energy when you're in the same physical space. Even if you don't know what's exactly going on, just walking by, you can you can kind of feel the you excitement. Do, you feel the energy, and I feel the energy from the students. I really, really miss students. I miss my grad students like crazy. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Elliot, for taking the time to speak with us today. We look forward to, have to sharing the link from the panel that you moderated uh, in the description of this podcast. Yeah. And for sure, we will make sure to send this episode once it's published uh, to you so that you can also share with any of your students or anybody else that you'd like to. Great, thank you so much, Simon. Thanks for joining me on this journey to understanding vaccine supply chains. I hope you've learned something new along the way and have a newfound appreciation for the people working hard behind the scenes and round the clock to get us back on our feet. Vaccine appointments are now rolling out and I encourage you to look to your local health authorities for information on when you can book yours. In the meantime, stay safe, wash your hands, remember your mask, and we'll catch you next time on Ideas Without Borders.